Welcome to Move the Needle, the human performance podcast with your hosts, Hunter Eisenhower and Mike Sullivan. Shout out to Lumen Sports for sponsoring this episode. Lumen Sports is your digital headquarter for athletic performance. It's an Australian-made company that centralizes athlete management, team communications, scheduling, data visualizations, and features third-party integrations to save valuable time and elevate decision-making. Lumen is trusted by pro sports teams, colleges, high schools, and high-performance centers. Lumen is an affordable solution that seamlessly connects coaches, athletes, medical staff, and operation teams. You can download a free demo today to find out why teams around the world choose Lumen Sports. Today on the podcast, we have Jeremiah Welch. Jeremiah is currently the head performance coach for the recently crowned WNBA champion Las Vegas Aces. Before working for the Aces, Jeremiah spent time with the Detroit Pistons organization and before that working within a handful of collegiate programs. On today's episode, we'll get into his time with the Aces and the spectrum of performance within the WNBA, adjusting from his time in the NBA, and we'll spend some time talking about his PhD that he's currently doing through Liberty University. As always, enjoy the episode. Just some of the compare and contrast as we um, kind of sent you between working this first first season in the WNBA and then that time spent in the G League. Obviously, the schedules are super different in the WNBA and in the NBA. Obviously, you have males and females. So can you just take us through some of that compare and contrast and some of the challenges that you faced, maybe didn't see coming, um, et cetera, et cetera, however you want to take that. Yeah. Um, so like, first off, like the WNBA is adding games every season. Um, we had 40 this year, which was like the most they'd ever played. And the, like how long the season is, it's like the schedule is very similar to the NBA. I mean, we played like our craziest stretch was like 13 games in 25 days. And so like, I felt like the scheduling wise was very similar. Like the, the way we traveled sometimes different, like sometimes we have to fly commercial um, on a back-to-back, you get like a charter. There's just like different scenarios where you get different types of travel, but sometimes you're, you know, you're flying commercial. So um, you're, you're taking more time to travel than maybe on uh, the NBA side. Um, but the actual like density of games as such is very similar. And when it came to training, like I really felt like initially I might be a lot, um, like it would be very different, but to be honest, like my training, like, was very similar. And a lot of the exercises, the exercise selection, um, how I worked through the girls throughout the season was very similar because like the way I see it is if you get two rookie athletes in either in both sports and like, you're just kind of like generally making them better and they don't play a lot. It's like, you're doing majority of the same things because the movements are the same, uh, in their sport. Whereas like, as a player gets older, I'm specializing and, um, I wrote like individual programming for every girl. And so kind of based on her injury history, her playing time, et cetera, like I would change that. But it was honestly the same as I would have done for a guy. It's just like uh, as their careers progress and maybe someone has an injury or et cetera, it's like I'm specializing. So I actually was pretty like, I don't, I don't know if like shocked was the word, but like when I looked back on it, I was like, I honestly did the same thing. I just had different resources here. So I, I like implemented it slightly differently. But at the end of the day, it's like, the personalities are a little bit different. Um, you know, the way I'm going to talk with them, things like that are different, but like the, in the weight room, I could have probably had guys and girls at the same time. And we'd have been looking the same. What was kind of like the mentality around training within the WNBA space? Because I've worked in like collegiate basketball, 
I've seen what the G League is like. I've seen what the NBA is like. I've never worked in the WNBA. What is like that mentality around training within that space? Would you say it's similar to the NBA? Would you say it's similar to different spaces? Like what, what, how did they approach training? Or I guess think about it from maybe even the player's perspective and the coaching perspective. Yeah. Um, so like I'm the first full-time strength coach at the ACES had had. Um, so like last year they had someone who was like a half PT, half strength coach. Um, but, you know, needless to say, it's like she was spending a lot more time maybe in the training room than, you know, actually working uh, with athletes. Also, they opened our facility in April and before that they never had a facility. So like they were like bouncing around randomly practicing at UNLV, uh, then at a high school and then at, like a private facility and just like wherever they could get in. So there was just like no consistency of training. So when I came over, the biggest thing I did was we did a daily activation and that kind of became a little specialized as the season progressed. But every single day, every single practice, every single game, we did our activation. And then I just throw like a short lift on top of it. And so initially, I think the girls were like, I don't want to lift every day. You know, I don't want to do this. But I'm like, hey, we're just going to do our activation. Oh, here's your three exercises, you know. And they just started doing it. And then it got to the point where there was a few games where I was like, our few days, um, maybe we played like two games in four days or like a really just a big stretch, like maybe we had four games that week and they'd come in and they'd be like, okay, what do I got today? I'm like, well, you're going to be off, but like, you know, no problem. I'm going to throw some stuff at you. And so I think it progressed a lot because initially it was um, like, we just did the activation and it would take them almost 30 minutes to do. And then they, they get it done in like eight minutes. And so I just gradually increased the loads. And I think the, the mentality around it was like lifting makes me sore um, you know, I only do it every now and then, but as the season progressed, it was really cool. And so it was the first time though, for these girls to be in this scenario. So like when I walked into Detroit, it's like, these guys had all been doing this for years and years. They're used to working with the strength coaches. They're used to the process. They're used to pregame activations. Whereas on the W like on my side, it was like novel. So, um, I think next year they're going to look very similar, but it progressed to a really good place for us. That's awesome. Now, what is what is the rest of the WNBA look like? Is it similar that they are now more full time SNC coaches, or is it still a hearty split of PT part time SNC? So actually, like I did a a poll this year, or um, kind of like we um, we had for the NBA and G League, and it was like six of us. I think are full time just strength coaches. Every team has someone who does strength, but the other six are like equipment slash strength. Uh, AT slash strength but um, I think one more team next year is going to a full-time strength coach so it's progressing in the right direction but um, it's not quite there yet well I mean looking at like your facility your new facility and like the pictures I've yeah. seen of it and then seeing the attendance at some of these WNBA games like the the WNBA is growing quickly as it should but like the, I feel like from when I first started watching basketball to now the WNBA has grown by a thousand percent it's incredible it's incredible to see the growth um one thing that I wanted to dive into a little bit that you alluded to earlier was like the individualized programming approach that you take and I think that that's extremely important and especially at that level or a level where you're only working with a certain number of athletes 12 15 whatever it may be take us through your individualization approach and how you wrote those programs 
yeah so like first off the it was kind of it was really cool actually to see uh like how many fans we had coming out and like as we got into like playoffs you know a lot of people are just growing in like their interest of the game and the resources are improving and you know we have a really great owner in mark davis who invested a lot of money into the team and it's it's obviously paid off right like he he bought a brand new facility um he's spent all this money and it's paying off like we're winning and so i think it's like really showing that the value of when you invest like what you get in return and so like when i came over i had a really like i have a brand new weight room i have technology um like i have a quantum 1080 for example which like a lot of teams don't have access to and so i was able to like when i got here i was like i don't know what i i didn't know how to use everything that i had like i have a sprint 1080 also um i have this like random agility system from germany that i've never even seen before and and so i'm like i'm just trying to like figure out like where do the pieces of these different things like fit into my program and so just from the beginning like i just started super basic like hey man we're going to do some barbell dumbbell push pull you know like we're going to squat we're going to hinge and as we did that and then i just tested so like um i have vault software so i just tested on that i just gradually started adding little pieces of like isokinetic training um of some velocity training on the 1080 for example or some reaction training here and there and so initially very just super basic as basic as it gets programming uh and we do a lot of foot care and then i'm like throwing different things in and so towards the end of the season it's like i had a lot more tech out i was um getting a lot of, a lot more data points and then with those data points as i continue to test and retest it's like our girls got better at some of the more advanced stuff but i thought i thought we got had a really good baseline of like basic training and so my actual programming was just it was just wrapped around just you know your basic super basic movements the one thing that's really hard in the wmba is that when you're playing in away arenas you don't have your own like space like you're lifting in the hallways and like every team is supposed to give you dumbbells and like a medicine ball but like sometimes that's like 10s and 15s and sometimes that's like power blocks up to 100 and so it's like i i actually like was i didn't pre, uh, like program out in advance like when we we'd play because like we'd get there and like one time i would like we played in an arena and i had 10s and the next time i was there i had like um these nordic like uh adjustable dumbbells that were like up to like 40 and they broke <laughs> and so like i was like i was like oh no like what are we gonna do so it's like i had to just be really um in the moment like quickly able to adjust to that situation so i just tried to be like really flexible when it came to like training on the road um but just like build their movement literacy build their basic foundations and then throw in a little spice here and there i want to mike do you have anything on that uh no but i, I have a follow-up but it's a little bit of a side tangent. So if you well, ask, no, go ahead. Mine was kind of a side tangent, but we'll we'll see if it fits. You talked about foot care, um, and I think that's extremely important. I think it's even more important for basketball players. What's your approach with that? How do you view the foot? How do you train the foot? Kind of like approach the treatment of that of that area. Well, I'll say like when I went to Detroit, um, like. Trent Salo runs a great program there. Like the first thing they do is foot care. And I learned a lot from him. And then after that, like, I just tried to read as much as I could, you know, just study up on it. Cause I, I didn't feel very comfortable with it. And I kind of just like found like a, 
I don't know, three, four or five things that like we do and but we do it daily. So when they come in, like we don't have shoes on um, when we do activations on the court, we don't have shoes on. And I just like basically like from day one, I was like, no shoes in the weight room unless you need them, you know, and that was a really good like just step in the right direction because it's like for the basketball players, some of them have never like done stuff without shoes on. And so I like I put a rock mat down, put some tennis balls out, you know, and we just start with some like proprioceptive feedback and like they walk on the rock mat. We do. Um, and then we just move kind of like up the foot and up the chain. And um, it's like it's pretty simple stuff. But every single day in their activations, we did it. And so I, I, I can't say that I have like the most exhaustive like foot knowledge or anything, but I'm like, hey, we just do it every single day. And um, then as the girls started to like it, I would just, you know, try to read and find a new idea and throw it their way, see if they like it. And then like, um, I really believe in like athlete autonomy. So when they do their activations, like once they've learned it, I don't actually tell them what to do. Like they walk and they do it. And then, so sometimes they're doing stuff that I didn't even give to them. And um, it's like outside of maybe my wheelhouse, but um, as long as I think they have that basic, like these are the three, four things that I want you to do. It's like, it, it brought a lot of value. Yeah, I always think that feet with basketball players specifically is such low-hanging fruit because they're always wearing shoes. They Half of them wear two pairs of socks. Half of them get their ankles taped. And it's like, even just from like a sensory tactile stance, like so limited. Like, yeah, walk mm -hmm. on a rock mat, roll your foot on a neurospike ball, and you're immediately going to notice differences. Um, so I, I really like that. And I think that the consist consistency of doing it every day is probably – very powerful as well as opposed to once every couple weeks um all yeah. right Mike. actually no you got well, more go ahead quick follow up on this um one thing i think that was really interesting too is just like if you like sit with the ats and pts and like see what they do with their foot because like i went and i just was like hey like can you show me what you guys do and like they just show me how like they'd move the midfoot they'd move the calcaneus etc and i was like cool let me try this so you know like um i, I would tr i would try it out see how it felt and it's like when I was maybe cueing them in on what I was doing too, it's like, we kind of had a better plan together. And that, I think that made a really big difference is because it's like all those things like you're talking about Hunter are so valuable, but it's like, they have some skills too, that maybe like, if you encourage, like they work really good in tandem. Yeah, no, hundred uh, percent. I really like that. Mike, go down your, uh -oh. go down your rabbit hole now. <laughs> well, now I have a follow-up rabbit hole. Though. Oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> so I, I have three i have three separate rabbit holes let's let's start with this most recent one what do you do what do you do hunter for your uh foot stuff for uh, your basketball guys well i alluded to the first one but it's like tactile stimulation um yeah we have a rock mat as well and every day that we weigh in they have to do with their like shoes off anyways to just that's how i weigh guys in um and i just set the rock mat out in front of the scale so they have to walk across it before they step on the scale super simple i got neuro spike balls in the way because I've used those in the past and I think they're extremely beneficial. Um, and then I also just like try to get them barefoot as much as possible. Cause I think that that is a lot of low hanging fruit. And then also like from a, actually what you just mentioned about like the, the midfoot movement and the calcaneus movement, yeah. like I literally have yeah. them do some like self mobs on the, uh, on themselves and then mm -hmm. put them in different positions to like get big toe extension because like for whatever reason their big toe stuck so it's like we might crawl and they might see it as like whatever a core exercise or but i just really like the position that crawls can put feet in um so yeah again nothing nothing groundbreaking but i think that 
you don't have to be groundbreaking with its population because they're always in so much cushion. Yeah. Like getting in um, the foot through like other movement selections, I think is like vital, like you're talking about, because it's like, if you think about like a barefoot crawl, it gets you into that, like you can mobilize the toe like manually, like, or, you know, you can have them go push it against the wall or you can just have them crawl. Or like um, yeah. another one I really like is like, if you do a lunge uh, with a row, like if you do a cable row in the lunging position and you, you, you drop into it, you can also get some transverse movement as you're doing it. And um, so like, basically like we'll mobilize the foot first, we'll get proprioception, same, same stuff you're talking about Hunter, like very similar. Um, then I'm gonna like have them create motion at the foot, at the midfoot. So um, I use a blackboard and just have a couple of different like exercises on it. Then once we've kind of mobilized, we've created motion. I want to try to um, lock that in. So we'll do like a floating heel ISO. Um, we'll do some proprioceptive, like, uh, like standing on a slack block, passing and catching a basketball, dribbling a basketball. Uh, once they've done that, I'm getting into the frontal plane. Um, and so like, and transverse plane. So we might do like leg swings, like on a, um, like a slightly unstable device or just leg swings on the floor because it like the foot will roll. And then uh, lateral lunges, because if you think about like a lateral lunge, like on a slide board, the, the foot that's staying still as they slide, this foot's going to invert and evert a little bit. And so it's like you're not doing it for just the purpose of the foot, but that's that process right there. Um, kind of just got the foot in, multi, in a lot of different planes. And then um, there was some there's a little bit of strength work there. So that, that's kind of like my process, but I set up that area like left to right. So the girls always work left to right across it. Um, and then on game day for activations, I set it up so they walk left to right. Once they get to the right, then they can put their shoes on and move on. I love that. I love the system. I think that's a really good approach. Yeah, no, I, I, that's really good. No, the reason the reason I, I was thinking about that was because there's one football player that I'm working with and he's got chronic Achilles tendinopathy. Um, well, tendinopathy would make it chronic, uh, so that's redundant, but when I started working with him, we started trying to mobilize his foot a little bit. And on his left side, which is his Achilles tendinopathy side, when he tried to mobilize his foot, like he could tell that he has like no ability to move his calcaneus at all. Like right side, he could feel like there's actual separation in his foot. Left side, there's like nothing. It's like it's like one big stiff block that is from like his ankle down. Um, so like we've been working to mobilize his calcaneus. And then when he like walks and runs on his left side, which is his bad side, as he goes to toe off, he like pushes off his, he like rolls off his big toe and pushes off his pinky toe. And his, his foot just turns in and he just pushes off his pinky toe. And on his good side, he like pushes off his big toe and his heel stays inside of his, his foot. So we've been like working really hard to A, mobilize his calcaneus and then B, try to get him to push off his big toe at toe off when he's actually running and, and walking. And it started to help him, but also the Achilles just is so weird because there's so much stuff that could potentially go wrong with it. So, yeah, so that was like my, if he has like a, our, like a tendinopathy already, it's like, you've got to reverse everything that's happened to that tendon, which is, that's a, it's so hard. Climb. Yeah. Like, like he's had, he's had problems for like five years straight now. And he's like, if I don't figure this out before the XFL season, I'm going to retire. So I'm like, all right, well, yeah. that's no pressure. So, um, <laughs> right. But anyway, and it's so like all those things, build on each other right like it's stiff so then the foot becomes stiff and then like now you got to work on the foot and then it's like the the hip is like doing too much and then you got to do more on that it's just like it's sending issues up and down the chain like that's that's tough yeah I mean, figure when it he, out like he walks on his left when he well when he walks on his left side because 
like his foot's so stiff, he pushes off his pinky toe, he rolls on his pinky toe. And so he's kind of stuck in internal rotation. So his hip on that left side is stuck in internal rotation, but his hip on his right side is always in external rotation. So his hips mm. are also fucked up. And yeah. he's also um he's also herniated two discs in his low back. Okay. So it's it's been a roller coaster. It's simple. Of a last. You, that's a simple <laughs> simple, simple <laughs> equation. I'd have just, fixed just it squat more day. weight. Yeah, what? throw more weight on a back squat, man. He's yeah, gonna be what? fine. What do you that mean? Fixes, that fixes everything. <laughs> Although you say that jokingly, but that's been his solution for the last like four and yeah. four and a half years in college football. So, um, all right. So, but what the actual question I wanted to ask you, Jeremiah, was so you started with the aces, and it was obviously this um, kind of on ramp of training right? Familiarity with them, familiarity uh, within the actual facility, right? The things that you're now implementing within the program. So as you have all these resources that the, that the ACEs provide for you, and you have these athletes who are now more and more comfortable within the program um, that you are creating, are there places that you see like, hey, these are the things I want to get to into the future that right now it's just, it's too far. We, we, we are too basic right now, but we have all this technology we have all these great athletes who are now more and more comfortable kind of the, the end goal roadmap that you kind of have as training evolves year to year. Yeah. So I like have more questions than I have answers if we're going to be honest. And like the more I train them, the more questions I get. The, um, the, the interesting thing for me though, I think is that I think like early in my career, I tried to like master like teaching movement so if I see an athlete like squatting, you know, lunging, et cetera, it's like being a technical, like perfectionist. Right. So I'm like, I can give you feedback. I, I can, I can externally cue you. I can do all these things as I think I had like went up levels. It's like, I kind of went away from that. And I was like really falling in love with technology and like, what are my applications, et cetera. Right. Like there's just like getting really deep into it, getting deep in the physiology. Um, I feel like I've kind of come almost full circle now where we we're back to like, really just like, mastering some basic movements and the interesting thing i found was that like as we just generally trained and i mean when i say generally trained i mean just like you're just big movement patterns um i mean at the same time it's like i'm throwing some nuance in there to say the least but we would get better um on testing so like when i would you know retest our our hamstrings we'd retest you know hip abductors adductors etc i'm not necessarily doing any direct specialized exercise for this specific group it's like i would just generally train we got better and so um one of the things like i think as i continue though is like let's keep the same movement patterns but let's implement it in a different way so um with a with a 1080 i can do um isokinetics right and so one thing we started to do as the season progressed was like um, my global strength movement was like an isokinetic split squat at 0.1 meters per second or at 0.2 meters per second, kind of depending on like, and I would kind of adjust that based on like um, how they responded to it and just max effort all the way through, they weren't getting sore from it. But then it's like, we're training split squat all the time with dumbbells. So it's like, they're still training that pattern. And I'm just basically using the test and the training, like or the, the training to also be the test. And so I, I, I'm kind of just like picking out like, what are the other movements I do on a regular basis that now I can maybe try to implement in a new format. So isokinetically is like a big one um, via BFR is another one, um, but not reinventing the wheel, but just taking something that we do consistently and then like um, altering the demands, if that makes sense. 
So like I have some different ideas of where I want to go with this, but I'm just still kind of trying to figure out like what's, what's really important, what's going to really give us some, some difference. Um, but at the same time, it's like within the, um, the wheelhouse of what we're already doing. I mean, it sounds like that progression that you kind of talk about of like being very movement centric. Now you're, then you move to like more of a sports science realm and like rabbit hole it sounds like this could potentially be like the perfect place to end up because now you have the ability to focus on a certain number of athletes, but you can layer on technology on top of that coaching eye that you've developed. So it seems like with some of that stuff that you've ended up in a really good spot, can you explain, I'm, I'm familiar with the 1080 sprint as Mike is, um, can you just explain the 1080 quantum? I I've seen a couple like things that you've posted, but mm -hmm. can you explain like what that is? Um, and I guess you explain one of the application points, but maybe some different ways that you could use it. Yeah. Uh, so 1080 uh, quantum is like, think like the 1080 sprint. If you took it and you just put it vertical, there's two of them. And then there's a Smith uh, machine like attached to the middle of it. The really cool thing is like, you can use the cables independently. There's also um, a platform on the floor. So like I can run the cable through the floor and we can do something uh, that's vertical. Um, we can also go in the sagittal or transverse plane off the cables or with a Smith machine, we can like uh, barbell bench press. We can, um, you know, split squat, squat. It's just on a Smith machine, right? Um, then you have the tablet, which is like, it's just crazy just like what you can do from it. And I'm like, I'm still learning it, but um, you can set the speed of a movement. So an isokinetic, um, you can set it at like 0.1 meters per second. You can set it at 0.01 meters per second. You can set it at five meters per second. And they're giving maximal effort, but it's not going to move any faster than that. Then you could also add weight to that. So you could do an isokinetic with weight. You can do an isokinetic without weight. You can do an isokinetic with vibration, or you could just do vibration. Like, for example, you could do a pal-off press, and then I can make like the actual cable vibrate. So there's like there's like tons of different things and you can make the concentric and the eccentric different weights. Wow. So like one of my, I guess the biggest ways I use it is like, if you think about like a strength curve, obviously you're stronger eccentrically, but we don't necessarily match that. So a lot of times like we'll do like a row or a press and I'll put like, for example, like 10 kilos concentrically and 15 kilos eccentrically. And then I might adjust that as, as we continue. And, um, the, then I get data from every set, like every rep I have data from, I have the force, the power the speed, you know, the, all those numbers peak averaged. So it's like, like very complex what you can do with it. Um, but it's, it's given me the ability to like test out different things, track it over time, see if we get better. And then like play with the variables because sometimes like, um, I found that when I would do like on myself personally, like as I, I change the isokinetic speeds and the isokinetic weights, and then also like you could physically put weights on it, I would have a really different power output or a really different force output. So um, I'm still kind of like figuring out how to use it, um, but it has just like so many different applications. And some of that technology, I feel like you need like years to be able to really like master it because I would walk into even like a tiny sprint, which Mike is very, very familiar with and they use all the time at TC Boost, but like if I were to get one, even understanding the basics of it and then trying to apply some of it and like get useful information from it, I would be in so over my head. I feel like for a while, that's kind of how I feel with force plates, honestly. Like I've had them for over a year now and I still feel like I'm learning stuff about them. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's insane. Cause it's like, it's like unlimited 
you know, ability to learn and change. Cause it's like, you know, historically we've had weights, but we've not had this. So it's like, it's all novel to us. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I've used a 10 pretty much every day for the last two years. And, uh, I'm very comfortable with the linear speed application of it, but like even the change direction applications or the jumping applications of like the 10 sprint are still potentially new to me. Um, but the question that I always get about the 10 sprint and that's the last about the, the quantum 10 is the application to team sport, right? Because people are always like, Oh, you have a 10 sprint. It's great. But like with team, team athletes, like it's hard to use it because there's only one of them. Right. So same issue that you run to in with the, with the quantum 10 with the team or are you lifting in groups that are small enough where it's pretty easy to, to fit that right into the program? Yeah. So I initially like didn't use it because of that reason. Cause like, um, how we like lift, it's like, I, I could have one in the weight room and I might have six at the same time. It kind of just like, um, they usually like rotate through some of them are on court. Some of them are like within the training room, some more with me. So like just at different parts of that day, it's like, I have more or less. Um, but usually I just kind of pick like, these are my, this is my one movement of the day that's going to be on it. Everything else is off of it. And then like, when you get to that part of the lift, you're doing it. So it's like, that has made it a lot easier. Um, the other way I'll, I'll use it is like, um, all my girls that day are using like, uh, just traditional lifting. And then one's on the, on the 1080 or two are on the 1080 for like two movements. So, um, that I can like do it while also like looking around the room, but honestly, it's just not ideal like um a lot of days because it's like to set it up mix like cue them etc it's it's really hard to do in the team setting do you have any like interns or anything that help you i didn't this year um we had some athletic training interns who would occasionally like be kind of like in my area that would help me but like it was basically just me for the majority yeah. of the time it seems like whenever you, and i i experience this now and we, we do have interns but um having like one other person to help you kind of like run some of the tech so you can kind of like manage the room is so incredibly helpful but then you also have to get that person up to speed on the tech in order to be able to run it with your team so it's like yeah another person but they'd never seen a force plate before so how are they going to like <laughs> test my athletes on it so but it is super helpful once you get somebody up to speed and you have somebody else that can like do that stuff incredibly helpful yeah complete, complete how about like uh, how, like for athletes because i'm assuming right you will get free agents who have been in the WNBA for a handful of years, right? And as we talked about, the WNBA is ever-evolving and it's ever-progressing. And it's like, you'll get someone who's played for six, seven, eight years in a completely different environment, walk in all of a sudden, like she now with the Las Vegas Aces has access to more resources than she's ever had potentially in her career to that point. Um, so merging her training history, which you have no idea, right? Because... In the WNBA, like we said, in the G League, that NBA, like that part of training is just a part of the sport, right? And people understand that, right? Where in the WNBA, like you talked about, it's very new and it's growing, which is great. But having to merge the training of these vets, free agents, whoever, or even rookies who are coming from who knows where into now this, what is the probably highest resource um, team or organization that I've ever been a part of, how does that work for you? Yeah, that's like definitely, um, a big challenge to say the least. And the biggest thing in this scenario is like, in my opinion, <clears throat> it's 50% our opinion, how training goes and 50% the athlete's opinion. Like it's, it's really gotta be like, um, a good blend. And so for 
like example, like I have an athlete very good. I mean, she's been an all WNBA performer and she has worked, you know, with an outside uh, coach, like the, the coach sends her workouts in an app. She does the workouts because like she didn't have a, you know, a strength coach historically. And she made really good progress under, you know, this, this individual. And so like now when I got here, I was like, I'm not trying to change. Like, I don't want to like tell her like, Hey, you can't do that, et cetera. Like, I just want to make sure like, um, there's some buy-in here. And so I initially just like kind of sat down with her, talked to her about her programming and it was like, Hey, like, um, I would love to like, you know, take this over, but like, I, like, um, why don't, why don't you just start? Like, can you live with me one day per week? Can you just do one day per week and then gradually try to do more with her. And, um, we actually built up a lot of trust and she ended up doing a lot more of my programming, but like, it was the first time in my career I had a situation like that where I had to like co-man as an athlete basically. Um, but at the end of the day, it's like, as long, like, as long as they're doing good quality training, or if, if I'm giving it to them, someone else says, it's like, at the end of the day, like, we're closer to our goal of winning a championship. So like, this throwing my ego out is just really important. And then a lot of times with some of my more veteran players, like, they have certain movements they really want to do that I might not believe in, like, or maybe like, I don't think they should be a big part of my, my training. And I'm not going to necessarily say those specific ones, but like, um, there's a couple of things that like, I just honestly do not agree with. I don't think physiologically it has an advantage. I actually think it may be disadvantaged to do it on a consistent basis. But if my athlete is saying I do this and I feel better, it's like, who am I to tell you that you're wrong? So yeah, I, I think it's like a really big, um, it's like, it's like a really big conversation. It's a really big, like continued oversight. But at the same time, it's like, I have to believe that I don't always know the best answer especially if they believe that they feel better. So um, yeah, just, just, it's like a two-way street in my opinion. And, and that's been something I've had to navigate. Yeah. I think professional sports and, and basketball give you a new appreciation for allowing your athletes autonomy because I was just having this conversation recently with somebody, but like their body is their business, you know? So like if, they want to do this or they don't want to do that it would be really doing them a disservice to force them to do it even more so like i i think that at the college space too um and with nil like they're making money now too but still like if you're forcing a, a square peg into a round hole like you're probably causing more harm than you are helping their career and i think at that professional space that was one thing that was kind of interesting to me with with Sacramento was like, there is a lot of autonomy, but I think that if you control it in the right way and like create a relationship with the athlete, it's a very, very productive as opposed to just like forcing them to do certain things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like kind of like piggybacking on that, we have to prove to the athlete that we're like, we know what we're doing and like, we have their best interest in mind, you know, like from day one, it's like, it's so easy to be like, oh no, that's wrong. Don't do this, et cetera. But like, they might not trust you. And so like, it's a really slippery slope right like because if you lose their trust it's like then they're not going to do any of your stuff yeah you know they can just tell you no and yeah, so you gotta earn it it's like who are you to tell me to do this like i don't know you yeah and even in college like um you know those athletes obviously like they're kind of like they usually buy in a lot easier but it's like at the same time like you gotta prove your your value to them too because like if they believe in you and they truly believe in your programming and that you really have their best interest in mind and that they also can you know have a little bit of autonomy a lot of times you get better results. So it's like, yeah, why not? 100%. Um, one of the things I, I did want to take a left turn into a little bit, Jeremiah, was 
uh, I saw that you were currently pursuing your PhD through through Liberty University. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I, I want to talk that talk to you a little bit about that. Um, and I want to know what you're studying, why you decided to pursue it. Yeah, so, you know, it's kind of been like a professional goal of mine. Um, I, you know, however many years ago I set out these different goals I wanted to achieve and getting my PhD was one of them. I really wanted to like prove, like basically like I want to be the best that I can be. And I think that like that's getting a terminal degree is going to be a big component of that. Um, with that being said, it's like, I didn't necessarily feel like I was in the right part of my career yet to do it until like recently. And with the different data I'm um, looking at with my girls and like um, the different testing we're doing, I was like, getting a PhD will give me some framework, some structure to like really dive deep into like that application here. And so, um, yeah, um, I think I have like, I'll, I'll finish in 2026, hopefully. Um, but like, I'm kind of figuring out what exactly I want to do when it comes to like the actual dissertation portion of it. Um, but it's an exercise science and I'm just basically going to um, hopefully just dive deeper into something that we're doing already. You're pretty naive to this in terms of uh, getting a PhD. I don't really know. I mean, obviously professors in college and stuff had PhDs, but anyone close to me has never really gotten a PhD. What does the process look like in terms of like, okay, I want to get a PhD. Like if I wanted to get a PhD, like what, now what, you know, like, what was your process like of getting into a program? What does it look like from a day to day of actually like getting your PhD? Yeah. So it's like, it can really vary. Um, some are like super research driven, like you're in the laboratory. Um, you're, you're like, you know, your boots are on the ground, you're, you're doing the work. Others are like a lot of, um, or some coaches now are getting like overseas PhDs and they're, they're like, um, a lot of the guys who do like the quantum 1080 research, um, they're getting these like, uh, PhDs to like France or um, other countries, other locations, and they're working with a mentor to kind of like figure out a study design that um, or multiple studies that are, they're going to use. Um, mine's like my, the Liberty one is very different. It's more like traditional in the classroom, like you're learning and then you go and do the, the um, like your own research. So it's like two ports to it. Um, I can only speak to like mine, but uh, it's, it's very much, it's very similar to like honestly getting a master's. It's just continued classes and then at one point you're going to dive deep into like creating your own research so did you come into it not really you weren't really positive what you want the exact kind of framework that you wanted to go down you just knew that it was overarching this was the general exercise sports science like i want to go down this but exactly what i want to study is still something i'm trying to figure out yeah um i have like three different idea actually I have like six different ideas I want to go in but I haven't chosen it yet um so I actually kind of just I the one I picked um was like so that I could kind of have time to develop that idea and I had a lot of like flexibility in this program and it worked really well with my schedule so it was it was more of like it worked best at this time for me and I and it worked well with my schedule more so than like this is like very specifically what I want this is exactly the route I want to go in yeah. What are some of those things that you're thinking about kind of going down? Uh, the big, like the biggest one I, I'm kind of like bouncing around right now is um, isokinetic versus like traditional training. And so I don't know exactly what, how I want to do this, but I, I think it's like, um, like isokinetic could like, and decelerative abilities. I think there's a lot of similar similarities 
because like especially if I do like an um an iso um isokinetic eccentric movement and I'm doing a maximal resistance of movement like I think that's going to um pair really well with like a decelerative ability so like let's say um on a a sprint like I I uh or it was like pulling them and they had to stop for example and yeah. just seeing like what the force outputs are like I that was my first initial thought um since then um I've just bounced around some different ideas um, but I think it's going to be something along those lines. Have you done anything in terms of like resisted D cells on the 10 sprint? Like with yeah, yourself uh, or with your athletes? Yeah. One of the ones we did was like, um, I have a player who, um, will, she'll pro stop or she'll step back. So she'll dribble, she'll stop. And so what we did is I just attached it to her and then I had her just like dribble and stop like her same pattern she did on the court. And then, um, I just gradually increased the load and, um, we did, we did it like once a week, every week. And just like, that was my first kind of like dive into it. Um, I haven't really explored it more than that though. Yeah. I've been, I've been thinking about and trying to play around with more D cell stuff on the 1080 and I'm like starting to get into it, but honestly, I don't really know where to go with it. I've been doing more. So it's like, it's definitely a part of like some of our return to play stuff. We'll do like some kind of resisted D cell stuff, you know, um, but I'm not really sure where to go, but I like the, I like the idea of like that step back as a D cell, like a assisted into resisted out of, I like that as a uh, test or just training stimulus. I think mm -hmm. that like from and the, so, go, ahead. go ahead. I was just going to say, so Mike, when you're talking about like your return to play process, like have you used it more like sprinting and stopping, hopping, like um, shuffling, et cetera. Like what, have, how specifically have you used it? Yes. Yeah, so, um, so like last night, for example, um, I was working with a girl who's an ACL re uh, return to play and I just started having her like walk back against resistance where like, I didn't want her like, cause you can, you can have a tenure on and just pulling you in. And if like you sit mm -hmm. back, you can like sit back and like, you're not, not feeling anything in, in your actual knees, but it's like, if you're actually allowing like your knee to go over your phone, uh, need to go over your toe. Like there is some very like slow stimulus into your quad and to your knee. So just having her like walk back first um, where she's not like sitting back at all and then have her kind of like hopping like very lightly, like hop forward, hop forward, hop forward, and then getting her into like more of like a, a run to stop, run to stop, run to stop. Um, and then like I'll track like the actual 1080 graphs and see right to left asymmetry, um, what the actual forces are and then what it actually looks like. Um, and that's more just an experimental process for me trying to see if there's a, a kind of a place for it within, within, within return to play. But, um, I think just from, just from a kind of stimulus standpoint, it's a really, it's a really safe, really good stimulus. And it's also self-regulated because as soon as you start to give them a little bit more weight than they feel comfortable with, then what they're going to do is they're just going to start to sit back. So it's like, okay, I know at a five kilogram pull on this jog, if I'm going into like a D cell, and you start sitting back, okay, four kilograms, you weren't doing that, but for whatever reason, five kilograms, now you are. Okay, now mm -hmm. that's kind of our threshold. And then from there, we kind of we kind of work our way out. Yeah, no, that, that's that's really cool. I think it's like, you, you know, you have unlimited ability to kind of like figure out what that process looks like. Um, within the 1080, like uh, learning platform, have you been able to access that? Uh, like the actual web app or no, the, the, the learning platform? I haven't, I haven't used the, any, like a learning platform, the web app I'm on all the time, but it's, I don't really use it too, too much. They have a separate one. And I, I don't know, like I had to reach out directly 
to them for it. Um, but it has like some different seminars, but some of the guys talk about like ACL return to play with the acceleration. So it might be interesting for you to check out. Gotcha. I'll check it out. Yeah. I feel so out of the loop right now since I don't have a 1080. I just, yeah, you idiot. God. I'm so freaking, <laughs> every time we have somebody on that talks about 1080s and now we're talking about 1080 quantums, not even just the sprint. I'm like, oh my gosh, can I get a freaking run rocket? <laughs> um, but I do, yeah, I do for... think that I do think that deceleration is a really interesting point. And the, the thing that I struggle with, with training deceleration is like the forces and, and, and the movement itself is just such an intense thing for lack of a better term, didn't sound very intelligent, um, that how do you like overload that quality? You know, like I just see things on social media as I'm scrolling through and people are like, I don't know, a couple steps with a med ball and then they like stop. And it's like, is that really training the quality of deceleration or does it just look the same, but it's so sub-maximal to actual deceleration that you're not actually like moving the needle in any direction for this quality. But I do think that like, as you begin to introduce something like a 1080, where you can actually like overload potentially a sprint into a stop or a change of direction, now you might be touching the surface or maybe even like pushing the ceiling of training this actual quality, but it's just such a like obscure thing. And I think that like Damian Harper does a lot of good research on it. I've talked to Kyle Sammons with the Arizona Cardinals a lot about it. Like there's people that are are definitely doing really good work in this area, but I still think compared to acceleration, max velocity, freaking back squats, it's so untapped. Um, but I do think that 1080 and having access to that te technology is a really good avenue to be able to like actually figure out this piece. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's uh, what you're saying. Like Hunter is like kind of like my train of thought. It's like, I don't want to put anything in my program unless I can tell you, like, objectively speaking, like, I think this is going to make my girls better. Like, if I got 20 minutes with you, like, I'm not going to waste my time, like, um, on something I don't necessarily fully believe in. I also think that, like, eccentric, um, like, load-bearing capabilities, like, you know, like, that's going to make a big difference when you go and play your sport. And so, like, if you get really strong at resisting, you know, movement in the weight room, like just the actual like raw ability to, you know, uh, hold a heavy load. I think that that's going to have transfer because it's like you're building up the stiffness, you're building up uh, that resilience, you're building up the ability to um, control yourself. So then when you go and play your sport at that faster pace, it's like you have the raw cap capability, but now you just have to relearn that new strength stimulus that you have in your body. And so like, Personally, like, I don't want to like overly like think that I have to do this specific thing in this specific plane to get this specific result. It's like, as long as I train general qualities, more than likely they go play their sport. It's like, it should be improved. You know what I'm saying? And so I haven't necessarily tried to dive too deep into it because I don't know the transfer yet. And so, um, I don't know. Yeah, definitely something no, to think about though. You like took the words out of my mouth and that's kind of where I've I've found myself on this topic of deceleration is I think that there's potential and kind of like I just alluded to with 1080, there's potential ways to do like specific things that that mirror deceleration exactly. But I also think that exactly what you just said and I 100% agree is that like you train the qualities needed for deceleration and allow that to be the thing that raises this the ceiling of their ability to decelerate because I think that that potentially could be the answer is finding ways to 
overload the system in some of these like eccentric nature movements in order to then have it carry over to deceleration. So yeah, I, I agree with that, that frame of thought mm -hmm. for sure. Um, so same question we ask everybody. Um, last question, what is something that you do or think that a majority of the field and let's say sports performance would disagree with? So I don't know if it's a hot take or not, but, um, I don't believe in, uh, traditional periodization in our population. Just like, I don't think it makes sense. Um, starting out in my career, it's like periodization was king. Like that was everything I, I, I thought about, you know, like I, I, read all the um, translated Soviet texts on Olympic weightlifting. I tried those models. I tried the system. Like I have a manual calculator that could calculate how many reps you're going to do per day, per week, per month, et cetera. Did all that stuff. Honestly, had really good results. With that being said, you know, in the WNBA or uh, NBA or G League, et cetera, like uh, even college at points, you might play three, four games in a week. Honestly, like we played five games in an eight day stretch at some point. And then you have one game in like a seven day stretch. And so the, the way, and then with travel thrown into there, the way that like they feel on a day-to-day -day basis is so varied. And so um, in a, in my opinion, a non-traditional periodized manner, it's like you're able to adapt to how they feel at that time, push load when you have an opportunity to, but also some days like they're just exhausted from everything else. And so, um, I actually didn't like, I wrote out a base program and then I just pretty much never did it. Like, um, I have a little note notebook, like it's really old school, but I have a notebook and I just write down the workouts in it. And like, we'd get to an arena, I check in, Hey, how are you feeling? You think you can do this post game? Yes, no, et cetera. Okay. But like, I'm doing more or less. And, um, when I tested and retested, we got stronger. So I was like, okay, like, um, adapting to like what's in front of us actually, you know, positively worked for us. With that being said, like, could I have maybe done it better? Could, would a periodized model maybe have been better? Like, I don't know. It's possible. It's very possible. Um, but kind of adapting more to like how they were feeling the playing load and the travel load, in my opinion, was more important than a, than a traditional periodized model. Yeah. You have to be incredibly fluid in that space with the density of games and the, and the athletes you work with, but um, I think that that's maybe it's not as like clean and precise, but I think that that's more impressive to when you can work in a space like the WNBA and create like a good training system, because there's so many variables that you have to deal with. Um, so if you can do it there, shoot, fall back into a, a different space with less dense uh, schedules and it mm -hmm. seems easy. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I think, I think it's telling when all the answers or when not all the answers, when the handful of the answers that we get to that question are all the things that we first learn when we're That's true. coaches. That's a good point. Like everything that we disagree <laughs> with, all the stuff that we learned to start the foundation of our understanding of sports performance is everything that everybody disagrees with. So there's probably yeah. an issue there. I don't know. Who knows? Maybe, maybe it's totally right. Maybe we're just fucked up. I don't know. <laughs> you know, and I was thinking about this cause it's like, I don't think periodization is wrong. Like, just the, I think like having a framework, whatever your framework looks like is just important. You know what I mean? Like just having some, some set subset, but like um, recently I read an article that talked about periodized versus non-periodized training. And it was, it was a short time block. It was like 10 weeks or something. One group deloaded halfway through one group just went all the way through the group that went all the way through actually on average had better, you know, outcomes. Now I don't know that's going to happen with every population, but 
I was so tied to like three weeks up, one week down, yeah. you know, for yeah. so long. But like, honestly, like I could have maybe even gone 10 weeks in a row. And like, I don't know. But yeah, a lot of times I think it's just like really thinking about what you're doing and is this the best for my scenario? And a lot of times, like the way we've always done it isn't, you know, the best. Yeah, hundred percent. Appreciate the choir on that one. And I think that last thing, this is, we probably could have ended the conversation on that, but I think that it's funny that <laughs> there's like certain things like a deload week every fourth week that like people hold so true. And it's like, you think that timing physiology and adaptation is as simple as train for three weeks and take a week off. And that's what you're like. There is so many systems in play here that if you think that that's how simple it is, we should get paid $10 an hour because <laughs> like that is ridiculous. Plus it's like, like, like when you're a GA or whatever, when I was GA, I was like, dude, I got like three weeks on and then I'm, I'm one week deload. And like, I have to hit this deload. It's like, I'm hitting this deload on my schedule. Yet this swim team I'm working with just swam 60,000 yards <laughs> on my deload week. Yeah, but yeah. I had to do it. I had to do it or I was really yeah. fucked up. So yeah. That's, yeah. Anyway. Hey, Quick anecdote about this though. When I worked with track, um, they actually synced up to my deloads in my peak weeks. Wow. Like I, I'm telling That's you nice. like unbelievable more than they, they synced up to like what they did on the actual, like um, in their sport. Like a lot of times, like if we had a deload or a peak week, they would come in and they'd be like, hey, guess what coach? I ran a PR this week. And I was like, really? As the season progressed, they like really synced up to it. It was crazy. So like, I do think if you have more control, like swim is going to be a tough one, a really tough one. Cause I periodize too. So if your periodization doesn't match right. up, it's really tough. Um, but in a team sports setting, when you're all over the place with games, et cetera, doesn't, I don't know if it works as well. So yeah. I think there's some scenarios where it, it is a, you know, a really good thing. No, that's probably the, that'd be an amazing way to do it. Especially with a, a sport coach syncing up to what you're doing in the weight room. That's like unheard of. Anyways, yeah. uh, so I appreciate you being on the podcast today. Yes, Incredible sir. conversation made me even more envious of having 1080 stuff, but maybe one day I'll be <laughs> able to be as, as cool as you guys. But uh, yeah. um, quick plug to where people can find you if they want to learn more um, or reach out. Yeah, I mean, best way is probably uh, just Instagram at Jeremiah Flies. Um, I'm that on all social media platforms. I honestly don't post that much, but uh definitely feel free to reach out thank you guys for listening to the episode find us on social media at mtn underscore perform and another shout out to our episode sponsor lumen sports to find out more about lumen or to download a free demo head to lumensports.com or head to the show notes see you guys next week